Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 12 on Alice's Adventures. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at chapter three of Through the Looking Glass. Um, we got as far as Alice's conversation with the Red Queen last time. And uh, tonight, we are going to get through uh, past the Looking Glass insects, I hope. That's the goal. Uh, and through up to but not including Tweedledum and Tweedledee, as she is going to leap forward and be, well, almost halfway to becoming a queen <clears throat> by the end of tonight's class, um, as she's going to be hastening through uh, square number three uh, by train. But anyway, as I say, we will, uh, we will, we will get to that stuff. Um, a quick reminder, our fall moot season is almost coming to an end, but we have one last moot remaining, and that is SoCal Moot down in Carlsbad, California, and that is going to be next weekend. So 10 days from now, on the 5th of November, is SoCal Moot in Carlsbad. So if you can go, you go to our events page. Uh, on our Signum University website, and you can still register. We, we're, we've gotten a bunch of registrations for uh, folks who want to come uh, join us on site. And of course, you can still register to participate remotely. This moot, as all of them are, will be a fully hybrid moot. So that is where we're going to be. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and and there we are. So looking forward to SoCal Moot. And then, as I say, that will end our fall moot season and we will be moving then forward into the spring. Um, yeah, so um, the uh, Brisbane Moot, Oz Moot, which is indeed the next moot after that, is going to be in January. It's the last weekend in January. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So the, uh, you can, I'm not sure exactly uh, when we have to close registration for that. Um, but I don't think particularly early. I haven't heard anything about closing that one particularly early. Uh, so you should still be able to register uh, for a bit. And yes, Jocelyn, I am coming out to SoCal. I'll be in Carlsbad um, next week. I'm not going to be spending a, a whole lot of time uh, there in uh, in SoCal, but I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there next weekend. Um, yep, looking forward to that. Um, all right. But... Without further delay, uh, as I've already been delayed here this evening, let me uh, uh, let me push through into um, uh, into tonight's slides as we didn't quite get through chapter two last time, so I want to finish that up. Um, we got right to the part where the Red Queen and Alice start running. Now, now, cried the queen, faster, faster, and they went so fast that at last they seemed to skim through the air, hardly touching the ground with their feet, till suddenly, just as Alice was getting quite exhausted, they stopped, and she found herself sitting on the ground, breathless and giddy. The queen propped her up against a tree and said kindly, You may rest a little now. Alice looked round her in great surprise. Why, I do believe we've been under this tree the whole time. Everything's just as it was. Of course it is, said the queen. What would you have it? Well, in our country, said Alice, still panting a little, you'd generally get to somewhere else if you ran very fast for a long time, as we've been doing. A slow sort of country, said the Queen. Now here, you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Okay, now, of course, there are several uh, kind of jokes going on here, right? One 
is merely the fact that uh, the this is the queen, the red queen that we're talking about, right? The chest piece which um, moves most and fastest. So the red queen, of course, is a very, um, very, very, very swift and agile, and we'll see the queen's moving fast uh, later on. But notice the similarity between this trend here uh, and the uh, uh, and the directional thing, right? In order to get to the hill, you've got to turn around and walk in the opposite direction of it. If you try to walk towards it, um, you will end up getting to exactly where you don't want to get, um, which, of course, in Alice's case, was back inside the house. Um, but if you want to, if you turn and go towards the house, then you'll end up at the hill. Here, similarly, if you want to stay where you are, you've got to set off running very fast. And if you stay where you are, um, if, if you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Um, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place, the queen says. Um, now, this is a little puzzling, of course, as we don't, in fact, see that being true in other cases, right? She wasn't have, having to uh, continue... Uh, uh, continue running right the whole time in order to stay there talking to the flowers right she was standing in front of the flower bed she wasn't being swept off somewhere right because she was standing still so we do not see this as consistently true um the queen dismisses alice's country as a slow sort of country and i agree forth dauntless that um I, I think one of the things that we're seeing here is this kind of inversion that we have associated with Looking Glass World already, right? The um, it's it's still not exactly. She's not finding that like when she goes to turn left, she finds she's accidentally turned right. That's the kind of thing I would sort of first expect in a in Looking Glass country, right? If everything is mirror reversed, and she hasn't, and I don't think she ever confuses right and left again, as you would expect her to do uh, in. Uh, sort of mirror reverse land, um, but um, uh, but anyway, I, I um, so that I think is is kind of an interesting thing, and it suggests to me that there's something um, sort of deeper going on here, right? More than just a simple mirror reversal of things. Uh, first fish, I agree that does seem to be an interesting correlation. Um, that it's this isn't quite an uh, that first fish says the inversions only work when you look for it when she's not paying attention it doesn't happen yes it's only when she is setting out with the intention of going to a particular place like going to the hill or going to meet the red queen that she finds herself going in the wrong direction it's only when she is running with the red queen and expecting to get somewhere else as in her defense one generally does do uh, if you run very fast for a long time, um, you generally get to somewhere else. That 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 certainly seems seems true. Um, but when she's expecting that is when she finds that she doesn't looks around her in surprise and um, realizes they've been under this tree the whole time. But again, she wasn't aware of that before that point. Like as they were running, she didn't have the experience of running really fast while nothing seemed to move around her. Right. Um, uh, so anyway, so that I think is um, uh, is 
more sort of evidence, I think, uh, first fish in support of your uh, your observation there that it has as much to do with her her will and her sort of I don't know what her assessment of things right when she's when she's thinking about it when she's assessing things they don't seem to work the way that the way that she thinks um, yes yeah and. JJ, I agree. It's not a perfect inversion here either. Otherwise, as JJ points out, one might expect that in order to get somewhere, one would have to stay still. And that's not what the Queen says. In order to get somewhere, you have to run at least twice as fast as that. Um, What we see... So again, it's not exactly an inversion. There is an inversion-ish element to it, right? Like things not working as they're expected to, things working even, in a sense, in an opposite way to their expected. What I think we begin to see here is um, a question of cause and effect first, right? It's the cause and effect that Alice points out. Um, If you run very fast for a long time, you'd generally get to somewhere else, right? The the result of that action. Um, I mean, it, in fact, it, it seems, the logic of that seems so obvious that it seems almost like a tautology, right? Um, if you run very fast for a long time, you generally go somewhere, right? Like if you're going somewhere, you get somewhere is generally what you would expect to happen. Um, but no, that that would be a, a slow sort of country. Um, what she says here is what she implies. Notice what she's done. She was saying before that when you say hill, I've seen hills compared with this, compared with which you would call this a valley. And Alice said, no, no, I would not. That's a contradiction. That's no hill could be so much larger than this hill uh, that it would make this hill into a valley. A valley is something quite different. That would be nonsense. Um, And what the queen is suggesting here is basically that uh, she can run so fast that, uh, you know, when you say running... Right. You know, uh, I can do running compared with which the running that you've just been doing would be standing still. See how that would work? It's almost exactly parallel to the kinds of claims that she was making before, which Alice rejected as nonsense on the same premise. Right. I mean, again, like by definition, yeah, one hill may be very much smaller than another hill. But the question is, is it going up or is it going down? Right. If it's going down, it's a valley. If it's going up to a hill, I don't care how large it is. It's not about scale. It's about direction. Right. Similarly. Yeah. OK. One person might run very, very much faster than another person. Right. Um, so you could have very slow speed and very fast speed. But either you're standing still or you're not standing still. Um, either you're you're getting somewhere. You're not you're not getting somewhere. Uh, it, 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 it wouldn't seem to work like that. And yet the queen shows the queen. This basically the queen is sort of doing an I told you so 
without even explaining it, right? She sort of, they are living out, she, she compels Alice to kind of live out together an instance of precisely the kind of thing that she was talking about before. In, so in fact, it seems that, again, it's that premise. Um, Alice's rigid premise, which seemed perfectly sensible. It seemed like the opposite of nonsense. Alice's claims. Right, that you, you, it, it would be nonsense to call a hill a valley, no matter how small it is. That, that's nonsense. That is a contradiction to the meaning of the words. Just as it would be a contradiction to the meaning of the words to say you can run for a very long time and remain in the same place at the same time. Right? That's not possible. That's nonsense. That's a contradiction to like what the word run means, right? Or what sort of traveling means. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And re you remember, of course, the queen's final comparison, right? You may call it nonsense, but, uh, I have heard nonsense compared with which that was as sensible as a dictionary, a dictionary, which tells you exactly what words mean, right? Which attaches particular meanings to particular words and says this word means that and no other thing. Um, what nonsense is to the queen is such that Alice would call that thing which Alice called nonsense, which is calling a hill a valley, right? That it would be as sensible as a dictionary, but it's exactly on the dictionary premise. That is that the word hill cannot mean the same thing as valley. You cannot use those two words interchangeably for a given thing, no matter what. Um, and that's exactly what the queen asserts she would do, right? I mean, if she could hear the, the real nonsense right, that uh, the queen herself has heard. As that conversation went on, the queen sounded merely more and more stubborn um, and more and more silly, I think. And yet now we see the queen's right. At least here, she seems to be right. Um, I mean, I don't know about the hills and valleys. I guess that I, perhaps it's true. Uh, perhaps it's true. But um, in this case, um, uh, in this case, we see an illustration of exactly the thing that she was talking about. Don't assume you know how things work. Don't assume you know what names mean. And this is where, again, I think what, what looked at first like a mere inversion, um, in order to go that way, go that way instead, which, again, has that sense of mirror inversion, right? The kind of thing you'd expect in Looking Glass Land. Turns out very quickly to be quite different um, and much more complicated about the Red Queen is about calling into question... I mean, one of the things that she's doing is calling into question the very meaning of words, the concept of definitions. Remember, she does almost exactly, uh, well, she does a similar thing. Um, Alice is hot and thirsty, and the queen gives her a biscuit. Um, now, from the sound of it, this sounds like a, this sounds like a, a, like a, I'm imagining it's like a cracker, like a saltine or something like that. Um, some very dry cracker, um, which almost chokes Alice to eat it. And the queen says, thirst quenched. 
um, from eating this very dry biscuit, which Alice can barely choke down. And Alice can't even get the word no out of her mouth because she's so... Uh, her mouth is so dry and choked up with the dry cracker when she was very thirsty. Um, once again, but again, you see the same sort of thing, right? Um, uh, she didn't get the chance. The queen doesn't get the chance to say, like, I have seen biscuits uh, so dry that you would call that a glass of water, <laughs> right? And yet uh, it seems to be... Um, it seems to be similar. I know a biscuit is a cookie in England, uh, Arthur, but again, that's not the context I'm getting from this, um, uh, from what Alice is doing. I mean, it's possible she's getting a very dry cookie uh, of some sort. Um, but, uh, uh, but yes, it is clearly to Alice the opposite of a treat, especially for one who is very thirsty. Um, I'm not sure exactly what in Carol's time would have been invoked by the concept of biscuit, um, but I th am, uh, I don't know, um, but I'm wondering if that usage may have shifted some. Um, this would be an interesting inquiry. Um, really, this passage is the first one that has made me wonder this, um, <laughs> that is, the history of the use of the word biscuit, uh, um, and I can't help but think, for instance, that... Um, when I think backwards a bit further to the 18th century, uh, 1700s, um, of course, the word biscuit tends to be used of the kind of um, dry, unleavened cracker bread that was used on board ships. Ship's biscuit, uh, which, again, very, very dry, um, rather flavorless, um, unleavened bread. Um that was called biscuit. So we're right in between the modern usage of biscuit as cookie and the older usage, at least 18th century, maybe it was still used that way um, in the 19th century as well, where biscuit meant, yeah, cram, basically, brick tails. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, um, so I'm not sure. Again, when uh, it's not explained to us, you know, um, all this time later, exactly what it is the queen hands her. But it's clearly something at least that dry. Arthur, yeah, I, I really like unleavened bread, too. Um, Arthur, uh, uh, one of my friends in college once told me that you could tell I wasn't Jewish because I loved matzah so much. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, but, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I quite enjoy unleavened bread myself, uh, but probably not uh, if it were handed me like this when I was extremely out of breath and, uh, and thirsty. But um, anyway, we will see. Again, I don't think it's a treat. So even a dry cookie doesn't seem to me to fit with Alice's reaction uh, exactly. But um, uh, anyway, um, so, okay. Let's see. Um, so again, I'm looking at the big picture here. What we see is within Looking Glass, within Looking Glass world, it's more than just opposite country. It's a place where the link between like words and meanings are starting to break down, and we'll see that continuing to um, uh, continuing to be sort of developed uh, as we. Um, uh, as we move forward um, through into chapter two. 
one last thing on chapter two before uh, into chapter three. One last thing in chapter two before we leave it. Um, the queen's anticipations of what are to come. This is going to be important for us to keep in mind. She gives us a summary of the rest of the plot of the book. Um, so the queen goes and she's putting those pegs in the ground, predicting what she is going to go and say. Right. So she's laying out precisely. Um, and notice how peculiar this is. She's going to tell Alice what is going to happen in the future. And in order to do that, she first makes a, like, meta prediction, right, of what she's going to say at what point. So she scripts her own speech uh, in advance, warning Alice in advance what she's going to do. And then she goes and does it. And the thing that she does when she acts out the thing that she just scripted is to tell about what's going to happen in the future, right? Um, So it is... um, sort of very elaborately laid out what's what's uh, it, it gives it the sense of greater certainty right because we are told precisely what she is going to say when she gets to these points so anyway she had got all the pegs put in by this time <clears throat> and Alice looked on with great interest as she returned to the tree and then began slowly walking down the row at the two-yard peg she faced round and said a pawn goes two squares in its first move you know So you'll go very quickly through the third square, by railway, I should think, and you'll find yourself in the fourth square in no time. Well, that square belongs to Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The fifth is mostly water. The sixth belongs to Humpty Dumpty. Uh, But you make no remark? I, I didn't know I had to make one just then, Alice faltered out. You should have said, the queen went on in a tone of grave reproof. It's extremely kind of you to tell me all this. However, we'll suppose it said. The seventh square is all forest. However, one of the knights will show you the way. And in the eighth square, we shall be queens together, and it's all feasting and fun. Alice got up and curtsied and sat down again. At the next peg, the queen turned again. And this time she said, Speak in French when you can't think of the English for a thing. Turn out your toes as you walk and remember who you are. She did not wait for Alice to curtsy this time, but walked on quickly to the next peg, where she turned for a moment to say, Goodbye, and then hurried on to the last. Okay. Um, So, first of all, did you catch what happened in the middle there? Alice is so mesmerized by watching the queen play out the script that she's made with the pegs. She not only just put the pegs in the ground to announce the spots where she was going to... She said... I will hear. I, I will walk here, and then I will say this. When I get to this point, I will say this other thing. And when I get to this point, I will say this other thing. And she's watching this script unfold. And in the middle of it, the queen says, "But you make no remark." And Alice says, "I, I didn't know I had to make one just then. That is, she didn't realize she was in the script. She was watching it unfold the way the queen said. The queen didn't give her instructions. She didn't know she was part of the script." That she was supposed to, I mean, I, I had a line? I didn't know I had a line, right? Seems to be the kind of thing, that's, that's how I understand Alice's uh, faltering uh, comment there. But of course, the Queen's reproof to her merely says, you should have said it's extremely kind of you to tell me all this. That is, that's that would indeed have been the polite thing to say uh, to someone there. Um And saying the polite thing, giving the polite response, like knowing when to say please and thank you and knowing when you ought to say, it's extremely kind of you to tell me all this, um, 
that is part of a script, right? Part of the social script of politeness. Um, but that seemed to have been quite different from what the kind of script that the queen was putting into place. And, you know, the queen moves on, however we'll suppose it said, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, let's, because, of course, you see the joke there. It was just said, the queen said it herself, right? The queen is acting out both parts. Oh, hey, she's pretending to be more than one person at once, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, uh, uh, Burijida, yeah, that um, his uh, contractions are quite literal. Um, if you think about it, it actually makes a great deal of sense. There's more than one letter um, left out when he spells can't. He doesn't say C-A-N apostrophe T. That has the apostrophe substitute for two letters. Um, he tends to do this can't and shan't and things. He uh, apostrophizes oddly. It was idiosyncratic. Um, he did not... He did not gain many adherents who are willing to put multiple apostrophes in this word in these words for greater precision. Uh, but um, but there it was. Um, OK, now. Uh, right. So Alice. In watching this peculiar performance by the Red Queen, who herself, the Red Queen, that is, has announced it to be a performance. Um finds herself caught on the hop because of not realizing she would be part of it. That mixture of this unnatural... I mean, this is not how conversations normally go. Um, it's not normally scripted in this way, uh, especially not only scripted in what words are said, but how it's going to fit in with her steps as well. I'm going to walk two yards, then I'm going to turn and say this. Um but um uh anyway um it uh it does draw attention in a different way we've had attention drawn to the uh conversational conventions before um this of course was happening again and again in the mad tea party back in Alice in Wonderland and we already saw this beginning to happen as well here in Looking Glass Land among the flowers um uh, already when, and with the queen, of course, right? When she, when Alice talks about losing her way and her words are literally seized upon, right? Um, and so again, that unwillingness to, um, sort of play along with idioms, with just like common figures of speech, right? By calling, by saying, I've lost my way. She's saying something about herself. She's not claiming ownership, uh, over the ways, uh, though the queen, of course, herself is. Um, but um, uh, anyway, uh, we've so we've already seen some of that happening. This is sort of a different way to shine a light on the same kind of thing, I think. Um, and it will be interesting to see how this continues to develop. We will get a bunch more of this kind of thing with Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Uh, so next week we will uh, we will get more into this kind of thing. Um, but uh, two more quick things before we move on to chapter three. What she predicts. So the landscape is set out like a chessboard, as Alice was observing, with the um, hedges being the vertical rows and the brooks being the horizontal rows. So you have to 
cross over the brooks to enter into a new uh, into a new square. And of course, since Alice is representing a pawn, she doesn't have to go through or over the hedge. She can't go through or over the hedge. Um, she can only go straight forward towards the eighth square in order to become a queen. As, of course, the Red Queen here promises, it's all feasting and fun. And she tells her what she's going to meet. Um, she's going to go through the third square quickly by railway. And, of course, we know why. Because the first move of a pawn, they're able to skip the third square and go straight to the fourth square. Um, so Alice is going to be uh, to move very quickly through the third square. Um, but we'll, there's something peculiar that happens there. Well, we'll get to it. Um, but um, there is, as I say, uh, there's something strange that happens in the third square, which is chapter three. Um, and then, because it's the fourth square that belongs to Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the fifth is mostly water, the sixth belongs to Humpty Dumpty, um, then the seventh square is mostly is is all forest, and one of the knights will show her the way. And then in the eighth square, there'll be queens together. Um, fourth Dauntless, I don't think Alice is going to be making any captures. No, because she's going to keep going straight forward the whole time. She's not going to go diagonally. Um, and uh, again, there's it doesn't seem to be that sort of chess game. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so we're one of the things that I think is noticeable about how she emphasizes, how she describes what's coming. She keeps talking about these squares belonging to people. This fourth square belongs to Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The sixth square belongs to Humpty Dumpty. Um, and that seems important as the queen was talking about how all the ways around here belong to me. Um, uh, all the ways around the whole board, right? She is the master of all the ways. She's a queen. She can go in any way that she wants to go. Um, but that ownership of the squares seems to be, well, interesting. And uh, we'll see um, we'll see how that ends up working out. Notice there's also they are also um, uh, alternating, right? Nobody, we're not told anybody owns the third square or the fifth square, which is mostly water, or the seventh square, which is forest. A knight will show her the way, but we're not told the knight owns it. Um, and then there will be a communal situation in the eighth square, right, when they'll be queens together and it's all feasting and fun. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But it's interesting to look ahead at how this is described because we're going to see all of that and more uh, as we move forward. But in the interest of that, let's move forward into chapter three. Um, at the beginning, as she's still on the hill and the queen has left, she's looking down at the chessboard stretching out below her. And she notices that she can see in the distance she can see bees flying around flowers is puzzled why she can see them so clearly when they're a mile away and then she realizes that they're actually elephants um buzzing around enormous flowers um and she has this peculiar moment i think i'll go down and no, I won't go just yet, she went on, checking herself just as she was beginning to run down the hill and trying to find some excuse for turning shy so suddenly. 
It'll never do to go down among them without a good long branch to brush them away. And what fun it'll be when they ask me how I liked my walk. I shall say, oh, I liked it well enough. Here came the favorite little toss of the head. Only it was so dusty and hot, and the elephants did tease so. Alice, upon seeing that the bees that she can see are actually elephants, her first response is delight, and she is eager to go and see the elephants for herself, right? The elephant bees and the flowers, which look like they must be the size of cottages with their roofs off, right, um, up on stalks. And she, she starts running down, but she immediately checks herself, which seems a conspicuous word under the circumstances. Um, and it's not just that she suddenly becomes afraid. That's never said, right? She's turned shy suddenly. Seen from a distance, the idea of elephant bees, right? Um, nosing about flowers the size of cottages sounds curious and delightful. As she begins to approach it, um, as soon as she sets out and it becomes sort of real, to her. She stops herself. It seems she she turns shy. It seems that she's afraid. The idea of it is very attractive. The reality is rather alarming to get down there, right? That's already an interesting thing. We have not seen Alice respond much in fear. Um, she didn't experience much fear in Wonderland for instance, even when she was being threatened with execution on a regular basis towards the end. Um, but here she suddenly um, is concerned about the elephant bees. I'm not saying I blame her for this, but I find that an interesting departure from Alice's characters we've seen it before. But there's more. There's now then another level of this. It's not just that she turns shy. It's that she tries to find an excuse for turning shy so suddenly. She doesn't want to admit that she is afraid. She has an inhibition, not just of going down among them. It's fear that is inhibiting her. I would think it looks like fear is inhibiting her from going down among the elephant bees. But that's but there's more than that. She doesn't want to admit. It's like she knows that somebody is watching her. Right? And that she has to cover up. It's not only for her to construct this story for later, but it's as if she's being watched at the time. She is thinking about constructing the story later, isn't she? What fun it'll be when they ask me how I liked my walk. I shall say, oh, I liked it well enough. Only it was so dusty and hot. The elephants did tease so. So she is making up a script for what she will say to the people who ask her about her walk later. Um, and she is, with her favorite little toss of the head, playing up the casualness of this, right? She's going to casually drop into the conversation. The elephants did tease so, you know, like usual. She is 
building this little fantasy of relating the story to someone else and how she is going to tell the story, even how how she's going to comport herself and toss her head, right? Um, as she's delivering this remark for maximum effect. So she's thinking about herself and how she will be perceived and how she will kind of shape the perception of herself. But she's also worried about perception of her in real time. She doesn't just have to come up with an excuse for herself. Um, it's not just the internal division, wonder and fear, the desire to go and see and find out and the shyness about actually approaching these enormous elephant bees. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, yeah. Now, First Fish, you're right. You are watching her. And that is exactly what strikes me. Notice what this passage does. Alice speaks a lot, right? I think I'll go down and she's often talking to herself. And, but this passage all of a sudden raises the question, is she speaking to herself? She was speaking, to, Alice has been alone the entire book in the sense that she's not had any other human company. We saw her first speaking to the kitten and acting as if the kitten understood her and was responding. Um, then we see her going into looking glass land and talking to herself, apparently, about that. Um, and narrating to herself as she is going through talking about wanting to go to the hill and not go back in the house. All of those lines from Alice have been just directed to herself. Um, but in this passage, it seems suddenly possible, at least, that Alice is... Um, it seems possible, at least, that Alice is aware of the fact that she has an audience. Um, and that's a fascinating idea. Um, that she is not... It'll never do to go down among them without a good long branch to brush them away, is the first thing she says when trying to find some excuse for turning shy so suddenly. Well, I, you know, um, so you might want a, a branch to brush bees away, right? I don't know how effectively that would work, but, you know, maybe it would work. Um, I don't know if that was a common practice if you were out for a walk, if you were a little girl out for a walk. Um, and there were bees around, you might want a, a branch to brush them away with. You would need an especially long one to brush away elephants, clearly, right? Because they're so large. Um, and she then convinces herself that... Um, uh, she then convinces herself that it'll be fun when they ask me how, how I like my walk. She's talking herself into it. She's talking herself out of her fear by imagining how she can um, uh, 
how she can I don't know what sort of like name drop this later on, right? How she can, how she can talk about, um, uh, how she'll be able to, to discuss this later on to her audience. Um, now I'm not saying I'm necessarily convinced that Alice and Lewis Carroll are breaking the fourth wall here. Exactly. Um, but I do think that Carol, at least, is sort of inviting us to recall that we are her audience. We are a sort of a stand-in um, for... And that she is thinking about audience, that she is sort of aware of this. Um, so anyway, I think it's something to... Uh, uh, this moment always kind of jumped out at me uh, in some interesting ways. We'll see, we'll see if we see some other similar things to this happening later on. Um, okay. She suddenly finds, she enters the third square and suddenly finds herself in a train. Which is awkward because, of course, she didn't have an opportunity to buy a ticket because she is suddenly on a train. Now then, show your ticket, child, the guard went on, looking angrily at Alice. And a great many voices all said together, like the chorus of a song, thought Alice. Don't keep him waiting, child. Why, his time is worth a thousand pounds a minute. I'm afraid I haven't got one, Alice said in a frightened tone. There wasn't a ticket office where I came from. And again the chorus of voices went on. There wasn't room for one where she came from. The land there is worth a thousand pounds an inch. So on the one hand, we have a very simple situation. She's being asked for a ticket. She doesn't have a ticket. She had no chance to get a ticket, right? Uh, To purchase a ticket because there was no ticket office. She's just suddenly appeared with there's there was no with no intermediary steps so normally i'm going to get on a train has the you know there are intermediary steps involved you don't jump straight from thinking one might be riding on a train to suddenly being in a train um normally you know there's like a platform involved which has you know a ticket office in order to get on the train you must first buy your ticket there's there's a process right a several step multi step where you first you go to the station then you buy the ticket then you go to the platform then you board the train and now you're on the train right I mean, there's a there's there's a there's a way these things happen but we jumped straight through to that, right? Um, We jump straight through from the notion of being on the train to being on the train. And so having skipped all of those steps, she, of course, doesn't have a ticket. So we've, so that's one thing that's happening here. We've skipped all these steps. There wasn't a ticket office where I came from. It's quite impossible for her to, to have, it's, if you like, it's nonsense for her to be asked for a ticket when there was no possible opportunity for buying tickets. Meanwhile, the chorus of people on the train, the chorus of a great many voices, are offering a very different kind of reason, right? Um, When the guard is looking angrily at Alice and saying, now then show your ticket, child. He's he's showing impatience towards Alice. Um, Now then, show your ticket, child. The chorus ascribes a reason for this. And their reason is, 
his the value it must be about the value of his time don't keep him waiting child why his time is worth a thousand pounds a minute so his time must be if he is this impatient his time must be very valuable indeed right so every minute that you waste of his is worth a thousand pounds which of course remember was worth a very great deal more back then um than it is now a thousand pounds is a very great deal of money um when Alice says I haven't got one and there wasn't a ticket office where I came from, once again, the chorus pipes in again with another speculative reason. Why was there no ticket office where she came from? There must not have been room for one where she came from. And why would there not be room for one? Because the land there is worth a thousand pounds an inch. Um, the land there must be so valuable that they don't have, they can't afford to build a ticket office. And that explains why she doesn't have a ticket. So notice how the first thing that what we get here in this scene in the, as soon as she appears here uh, in the, um, in the train carriage, cause and effect goes right out the window, <laughs> it would seem. Um, and we get, we get this strange overlay of conflicting reasons and interpretations, explanations of things that aren't explanations at all, right? This keeps going. Alice thought to herself, then there's no use in speaking. The voices didn't join in this time, as she hadn't spoken. But to her great surprise, they all thought in chorus. I hope you understand what thinking in chorus means, for I must confess that I don't. Better say nothing at all. Language is worth a thousand pounds a word. Um, hmm. That'd be a fun t-shirt, wouldn't it? Language is worth a thousand pounds a word. Anyway, um, I shall dream about a thousand pounds tonight. I know I shall, thought Alice. Um, okay. So she attempts to stop them. Say like, they're going to chime in with this strange explanation of whatever she says. Right. So she refuses to say it. There's no use in speaking. There's no use in speaking if my words are merely going to trigger some kind of bizarre explanation that doesn't even make any sense in the context of what I've just been saying. Right. Um, so there's there's no use in speaking. But instead, the. Um, instead, the. Chorus chimes in with her thoughts themselves. Better to say nothing at all. Language is worth a thousand pounds a word. I see exactly why you're not speaking, right? They have an explanation for that and that it's, it must be because of the value of language, right? Language is worth a thousand pounds a word. Um, and Alice says, I shall dream about a thousand pounds tonight. I know I shall. <clears throat> Alice is predicting that this is that this sequence is going to affect her dreams later that night. One thing that is happening here is merely dropping the seed of dreaming. Um, dreaming is going to come up more than once here as we go through. And certainly this segment begins to feel like a dream sequence with one thing transforming into another and, and, and that kind of thing starting to happen here, which wasn't happening before uh, the talking flowers were one thing. Um, the red queen and her, 
um, uh, strange, the strange sort of disjunction of words and things and things like that that was happening there was strange enough. Um, now it's beginning to feel like a dream. And in that context, Alice is thinking about how her own dreams are going to be altered by this, right? How it's going to impact her sleep. I agree, fourth dollars, that cause and effect have been bent for a while and now they're finally broken, right? Um, yes, we certainly see some strange things happening with cause and effect uh, here in chapter three, right? Um, while we are on the train. Um, notice, of course, the parenthetical. I said that the narrator, that Alice wasn't breaking the fourth wall, but the narrator here does, addressing us directly, the readers directly. I hope you understand what thinking in chorus means, for I must confess that I don't. Notice the effect of that dash. <clears throat> if he had just stopped, I hope you understand what thinking in chorus means. It would be a little peculiar to, to do that, right? To sort of pause and like if, to express something in a particular way and then say to your, address your readers directly in the second person and say, I hope you understand what I mean by that. That would be odd uh, to perform that kind of a shift, to perform that kind of a statement in a story like this. But then notice how he twists it. Um, by itself, I hope you understand what thinking in chorus means. My interpretation of that would be, I am attempting to convey this idea, right? I have this idea in my head. I am trying to convey it to you using these words. And, but, so, but I want to pause and check in with you. Do you understand what those words mean? Am I succeeding in conveying the idea that's in my head into your head by use of these words? That would seem to be what that first clause meant. I hope you understand what thinking in chorus means. But then the dash and then the twist, for I must confess that I don't. So he's not saying, I have an idea in my head, I'm trying to get into your head and I'm seeing if it worked. Instead, he's saying, I don't have any idea in my head at all. Um, do you know what those words mean? If so, can you tell me? <laughs> right? A very, an even more peculiar thing um, for an author to do. Uh, now, of course, remember when I'm talking like this, right, about words and things and getting ideas from one head to another through use of words, we should be remembering Jabberwocky and how that poem works, right? We've been prepared for this kind of thing. Um, this book has been very interested in the relationship between words and things from when we first got into Wonderland, or into, not into Wonderland, into Looking Glass House. And remember, even beforehand, Alice's own love for pretending has already um, prepared us for this kind of thing, right? Um, what is pretending if not disconnecting one thing with another thing, right? Um, you might not be a king or queen, but you could pretend to be a king or queen or a hungry hyena, right? Um, normally, the, f the, the noun hyena is not attached to the thing that is Alice, right? But by pretending, she can bring these two things 
together, even in ways which would seem to be logically incompatible, like her being her sister being one of them and her being everybody else, right? Her pretending to be multiple people um, at, uh, at the same time. Um, Lewis is here toying with us, going out of his way to toy with us and draw our attention to this indefiniteness, this, the indefiniteness of this connection between words and things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mo Dylan, I, I can get behind that, that the narrator not understanding what it means suggests he's not creating, but relating the story. Um, yes. And I wonder, Mo Dylan, if we can possibly connect this back to the previous slide when Alice, or not the previous one, but the one before, um, when Alice was thinking about other people's thoughts and reactions, how she would recount the story. She was going to be the storyteller when she mentioned, you know, casually about how the elephants did tease so. Um, does that imply that she is the source of all of this? That all of this is her imagination? Her pretending? What is our relationship with this story? Are we seeing it happen? Um, notice again, this is a kind of thing a story normally doesn't do. Um, I'm reminded of the anecdote from the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings set. Um, in particular, Peter Jackson's was it the Return of the King when they were doing Shelob. Um, I think, so. yeah, it was. Anyway, um, the anecdote goes that. Um, one of the actors was asking where the light comes from in Shelob's lair, because you can see things, right? You can see Frodo, you can see the webs. Um, where, what is the source of the light? Um, where does the light come from in that scene? And Peter Jackson's response was, the same place as the music. That's where the light comes from. Um, in other words, you have to play along with the convention, right? You're hearing music, but there's no actual music there. You're seeing things in a place where you shouldn't be able to see anything, in a place where it's where it's supposed to be pitch dark, right? Um, and uh, and again, the idea is we as consumers of stories, whether it's films or whether it's uh, uh, whether it's books, there are certain questions that we don't ask. There are certain things that we have to, by convention, take for granted. Um, for instance, like who's narrating? How does the narrator know what's going on? Um, when we're watching a movie, like we're watching a movie and we're seeing these two people speaking in private, how are we seeing this, right? Um, what, uh, you know, by what, you know, through what aperture are we looking in on this conversation? Um, the convention is that we're just sort of floating around and witnessing all of this stuff. And rarely is our attention drawn to the mechanism of how that works. It is sometimes, right? Um, again, just as I, when I talked about breaking the fourth wall in a play, same thing, right? Um, to we're asked to ignore the fact that what is happening is actually happening on a stage and we're sitting in a crowd of people watching this stage. Um, and Alice, the narrator here 
is calling into question exactly this kind of thing. Like we're being prompted um, between here and the elephants uh, uh, moment, right? Um, we are, our attention is being drawn to what exactly, what, what is this story that we're reading and how is it being transmitted to us? Um, the narrator, the storyteller doesn't know. Um, and there's even sort of another, another sort of overlay on top of this. That is, how is this book designed to be consumed? What is the way in which, what is the, what is the, the, the method by which this book is presumed, uh, is sort of the primary method by which this book is to be consumed. It's to be read aloud to a child. We're told that in the poem at the beginning. Um, and we heard that before, right? Exactly, Fourth Dollars. Um, you got a parent reading to a child. So the parentheses, is that the narrator speaking to us? Is it the parent speaking to the child? Is this a cue? I think of the Red Queen um, with her script, right? And then but Alice was supposed to say something, and Alice was like, I didn't know I had a line, right? Um, we're reading the story like Alice watching the script. And now suddenly we get it. We're, is this a line that's being given to us as readers? Right. I hope you. So is the you not us as reader, but the you, the child that we're reading to and the I, not the narrator, but us, the reader of the st of the story. Right. Is it like prompting us to do a funny aside comment to the child to whom we're reading? It works on that level. Right. And yet. At the same time, we are readers interacting with a narrative, uh, with a narrator. And at the same time, we're being prompted to ask, what is the relationship between the narrator and Alice, between the narrator and the content as the narrator is saying these things and admitting that he doesn't understand what he's saying? It's not his words, not his story. Um, you see how delightfully meta this story is? Through the Looking Glass is one of the most... Uh, self-aware uh, kind of meta stories that I know of. I mean, uh, what Lewis Carroll plays with here is um, throughout this book is just uh, amazing, just hilarious. But well, let's keep going. Okay. But the gentleman dressed in white paper leaned forwards and whispered in her ear. By the way, the gentleman dressed in white paper, another really, again, another very dreamlike element. Nothing is explained about that, right? We're given no reasons for this. Why, why is he dressed in, in white paper? And what's he doing on the train? And where is he going? And, and any of that, right? Um, no gesture towards any explanation, towards any reasons at all are given here. Um, there is so much that seems to be perfectly random in the train. That is, things happening without reasons. But the gentleman dressed in white paper leaned forwards and whispered in her ear, Never mind what they all say, my dear, but take a return ticket every time the train stops. Indeed, I shan't, Alice said rather impatiently. I don't belong to this railway journey at all. I was in a wood just now, and I wish I could get back there. You might make a joke on that, said the little voice close to her ear. Something about you would, if you could, you know. 
"'Don't tease so,' said Alice, looking about in vain to see where the voice came from. "'If you're so anxious to have a joke made, why don't you make one yourself?' Whew, okay, again with the meta-levels. Um, Alice rejects the kindly advice of the gentleman dressed in white paper. Um, remember that everyone's yelling at her about how she doesn't have a ticket. Um, and telling her what she ought to have done. None of which pieces of advice make any sense at all. And he leans forward and confidentially whispers in her ear, reassuring her, never mind what they all say, my dear. Right? Um... Yeah, uh, JJ, I, I am, I'm, I've been operating under the assumption that the Nat's name is Arthur. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, anyhow, okay. Um, he leans forward confidentially. The my dear, right, indicates, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of affection. And he's obviously on her side. He's not just yelling at her like everybody else. And he gives her the advice, take a return ticket every time the train stops. Right. So at every stop, buy a round trip ticket. Um, And she impatiently rejects this. Indeed, I shan't. Right. That is nonsense. That is a that's the worst kind of overkill. Uh, that's not how you do it. You don't buy a a new return a new round trip ticket every single t- at every single stop of the train. Um, indeed, I shan't. I don't belong to this railway journey at all. She now points to, with all of these nonsensical things happening, that is, all of these things which don't seem to have a proper cause, all these these effects that don't seem to have a proper cause, um, she points back to the root of the problem. I don't belong to this railway journey at all. I, I never got on this train, right? I was in a wood just now, and I wish I could get back there. Um, notice, by the way, this is her wishing to be in a place, again, like she was wanting to get to the hill. And she couldn't do that unless she turned around and went back in the other direction than the one that she was wanting to go in, right? Remember the inversion of her will and her um, her direction uh, back in the garden. So she seems to be in a similar kind of place now, except notice the, the irony, she wants to go back, right? And she, and the rail... Uh, the you know the train is inexorably bringing her forward, but she wish- wishes she could get back there. Um, this is where she's interrupted by the gnat again. This uh, tiny voice from near her shoulder, so close to her, her ear that it actually tickles her ear. Um, and she says, don't tease so. Just like the elephants. And, of course, now notice the irony here. She was going to just casually talk about the elephants teasing so um, as she related this story later on. And, in fact, what she's being teased by that is buzzing around her ear, um, what she's being teased by is not an elephant but a gnat, um, not the large thing that she was afraid of and thought she might need a very large branch to brush away, but something so small that she can't even brush it away. Um... She can't see where the voice is coming from. Um, Okay. But then we have the joke. Um, 
the voice is advising her that she might make a joke on her wish to get back to the wood. Saying that you would, if you could, you know. Um, a pun on W-O-O-D and W-O-U-L-D on her will and the wood. Um, you would if you... Something about you would if you could, he suggests she might make a pun. Um, and Alice asks the sensible question, if you're so anxious to have a joke made, why don't you make one yourself? The gnat keeps doing this. It keeps suggesting puns, suggesting jokes, but not making them himself. Um, <laughs> except that one point later on where he, he kind of accidentally makes a joke and then says, I wish you had said it. <laughs> right? Um, uh, what's going on here? So on the one hand, um, you've got everybody yelling at her about what she ought to have done uh, in order to have a ticket. And the gentleman in white paper is giving her this sort of final piece of nonsensical advice. Um, the advice that she's getting from the gnat is how she might make a joke of it. How she might take the thing that she said and turn it into saying something else. Now, there are two ways in which this seems quite relevant to the stuff that we have been seeing. First, the whole point of the joke is simply the pun. What is a pun? See, Arthur, this is finally the book for you, right? What is a pun? Why is a pun a joke? What is funny about puns? Well, it's all about the connection between the word and the thing. The joke of a pun is the ambiguity, right? Um, the ambiguity of you've got a word, but that word, that sound that has come out of your mouth um, that you have shaped into this word points ambiguously in two different directions or points in two different directions at the same time. That play of meanings, that the one thing you've said could mean this and it can also mean that at the same time, um, would and would. Um, there's no difference in how you say it, but a big difference in what the meanings of those two words are. That, that's what puns are. That's how puns work, right? Um, so, again, it's about how do you... Puns point to a, a challenge, a problem, an opportunity, right? Um, an intrinsic element in language that you have some indicators right? Sound combinations, right? Morphemes, words, which point in more than one direction. And you can only understand which one 
by context. But you can make a joke on it. That is, you can take it and you can deliberately shift the context in order to make a pun, in order to make a joke. That's why it's funny, because you're taking the word that points one way and one, and you're deliberately moving it into a different context, right? It's that juxtaposition of those two. That's funny, right? That's, that's why it's funny. Um, so again, it's about the nature of words, their connection to things, and how language works, that the gnat here is specifically drawing attention to. Um, but now there's more to it as well. There's also the whole cause and effect thing. Um, what is the response? What they're saying doesn't make any sense. She is still responding. Alice is still responding to these things um, with logic. Indeed, I shan't, Alice replied. Alice said rather impatiently. No, of course she's not going to do that. That would be silly. That would be nonsense. It's nonsense to take a return ticket every time the train stops. That's a silly thing to do. There's no reason to do that. It's not logical uh, to just because you don't you're on a train and don't have a ticket to buy, you know, whatever, 15 tickets. Um, totally unnecessary. That doesn't make any sense. She is still wanting everything to make sense. And the sort of counter advice of the net is that instead of responding, instead of making sense, she should be making nonsense. Puns are nonsense, right? It is taking a thing which is a sensible thing to say and turning it into a nonsense thing by substituting the one meaning for the other meaning, right? Um, that seems to be, in some sense, what the gnat is here sort of suggesting and how it relates to what Alice is talking about. Um, she doesn't get it. If you're so anxious to have a joke made, why don't you make one yourself? But again, what she's not seeing is that, again, the gnat is advising her, just as the gentleman dressed in white paper was in, was advising her. And she's rejecting all of those things. Um, okay. Anyway, she does. The train goes to jump over the brook. This is the part that I don't understand. The train goes to jump over the brook, and then she finds herself off of the train with the gnat, who's now the size of a chicken. Um, so no problems with the not being able to see it anymore. And it no longer has a small voice indicated by very small typeface in my edition, which I represented on the slide there. Um, but she seems to have gone backwards. The third square is the one she was meant to take the train through because she was going to spend very little time there. But then she wanted to be back in the wood. And when she jumps over the brook, she should be in the fourth square, which is the one that belongs to Humpty Dumpty. So maybe she's on the edge of Humpty Dumpty's square here, that she has, in fact, entered the fourth square. Um, and I guess she's going to come across signs to Humpty Dumpty, but there's... Uh, not to Humpty Dumpty, I'm sorry. Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Humpty Dumpty is six. Tweedledum and Tweedledee are four. Um, but anyway, um, so I... I, she must be in the fourth. Either she's... The only reason I question this 
is the whole going forwards and going backwards and the going towards the hill and turning around and going into the house. Um, she was just wishing she could go back to where she came from. And then um, she has all of this land to traverse. Um, but she doesn't cross another brook before she gets to, hump, to Tweedledum and Tweedledee. So I, I, I guess she must be in the fourth square by now. Anyway, um, here's the gnat still. And she's having a conversation with the gnat about insects. And uh, the gnat asks the lovely question, what insects do you rejoice in? Um, which uh, I love. Uh, that, yeah, Forthama says, wishing you could go back should send you forward. It, it may well have done, right? Um, yeah, it may, it may indeed have had that, uh, have had that effect. Um, Alice explains she doesn't rejoice in insects at all. Um, so here she's insisting on the meaning of that word, right? I, I'm not, uh, because I'm rather afraid of them, she admits. At least the large kinds. But I can tell you the names of some of them. Now, of course, here's Alice showing off her learning, as uh, she has been wont to do, especially in Wonderland. Um, of course, there's a, a kind of delightful irony here. Um I'm rather afraid of the large kinds of insects. Uh, what kinds would those be, Alice? Um, maybe, um, what, maybe if you encountered an insect, I don't know, the size of a chicken, would that count as a large, as a large insect? Um, unless it's a very small chicken indeed. Yes. Yes, it would. Um, so by her own, um, uh, by her own argument, um, the, she should be rather afraid of the gnat to whom she is speaking. Um, but she doesn't seem to be. She doesn't seem to be. Um, but I can tell you the names of some of them. Maybe it's because they were already friends. Um, she had already been conversing with this. Uh, um, she'd already been conversing with these. Uh, and well, no, she wouldn't be afraid of a human-sized caterpillar with a hookah, fourth dauntless, because that's not an insect quite different. Um, but now that you mention the caterpillar with the hookah, notice how much deeper the issues are here and through the looking glass. Um, Alice kept growing and shrinking, and, and we were looking at way in, in, in Wonderland, and we were looking at the ways in which that kind of mapped onto, you know, growing up, uh, you know, to become a to become a grown-up, right? To become a, a big girl. Um, a question about, you know, how, how big a girl she was becoming and all that kind of thing. Um, and there were some times in which, like, names were called into question, like whether she was a girl or a serpent, for instance. Um, but cause and effect, she didn't understand the cause and effect. Like, she didn't know what would cause certain things. Like, she didn't know... Um, what would cause her to shrink and what would cause her to, to, to grow at first anyway, right? But once she figures that, and the cause and effect don't work the same way as in our world, right? But once she figured out like each side of the mushroom thing, when the caterpillar told her that, then she had it worked out, right? And she was able to make herself grow and shrink at will by nibbling on one or the other chunk of mushroom, uh, right? To control her own size, What's going on here is something quite different from merely there is cause and effect. 
it's just not the like the things that cause particular effects aren't the same thing. You know, the kinds of effects that can be caused are quite different than we normally see in our world, and the things that might that cause those effects themselves might be rather strange, right? Um, but um, uh, but here in Looking Glass World there is a much deeper issue with cause and effect, right, than that. Um, again, it's like causality itself that kind of gets uh, called into question. But anyway, she's going to tell the gnat the names of some of the insects that she knows. And the gnat remarks, of course, they answer to their names, the gnat remarked carelessly. I never knew them to do it. What's the use of their having names, the gnat said, if they won't answer to them? No use to them, said Alice, but it's useful to the people that name them, I suppose. If not, why do things have names at all? I can't say, the gnat replied. Further on in the wood down there, they've got no names. However, go on with your list of insects. You're wasting time. You're wasting time, the gnat says, though it was the gnat that went on this name digression. Um, okay. The gnat immediately calls into question the relationship between names and things. Alice knows the names of insects. So do they answer to their names? If that's their name, they must answer to their names. That's what names are for, right? You call somebody's name and they, they answer to it. Um, what's the use of their having names if they won't answer to them? Um, no use to them, but it's useful to the people that name them. I suppose. Why do things have names at all? Alice asks. And that indeed seems to be exactly the question. Why do things have names at all? What is the connection between a name and a thing? Um, you've got the thing's name from its perspective. The name which is connected to the self, the creature's self-awareness. That's why people answer to their names, because they, they know that that name means them, that when you say, I mean, this, my puppy has figured this out, right? When we say this combination of sounds, our puppy does not, I believe, speak English, but when she hears this particular phoneme, she comes, right? She does, in fact, answer to her name. Um, so there's a kind of self-awareness there, right? That that word means me, and so therefore I respond to it. That's one sense of the word name. Um, but sometimes names can be external, right? Um, uh, the name can be entirely external, a name that's applied to things with uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with their own sense of their identity, with their own self-awareness at all. Um, so these two different perfectly normal functions of names are being kind of brought together like the gnat. Notice how that's almost exactly like a pun. These two ideas of names, of, of the concept of naming, right, are being brought together and juxtaposed. Of course, the answer to their names is almost the gnat making a pun again. It's not literally a pun, um, but it's conceptually a pun in that way. And it's a pun which not only, like, by that own, by that act itself, calls into question the sensibility of words. Remember the dictionary that the Red Queen brought up. Um, but also now is calling into question the very attaching of words to creatures, 
right? The idea of naming things. Um, why do things have names at all? I don't know. And then he mentions, okay, yeah, so there's um, um, there's a wood where they've got no names. There's a place where nothing has a name. So what does that mean? How does that work? Well, we'll get there. Crawling at your feet, said the gnat. So we get several looking glass insects. This one is my favorite. Crawling at your feet, said the gnat. Alice drew her feet back in some alarm. You may observe a Breton butterfly. So Alice has just talked about how there are butterflies in her world. And uh, he says, here's a bread and butterfly. Its wings are thin slices of bread and butter. Its body is a crust and its head is a lump of sugar. And what does it live on? Sorry, and what does it live on? Weak tea with cream in it. A new difficulty came into Alice's head. Supposing it couldn't find any, she suggested. Then it would die, of course. But that must happen fairly often, Alice remarked thoughtfully. It always happens, said the cat. <laughs> I love this book so much. Okay. Um, first, without even commenting on it, the gnat is drawing attention to uh, having first called into question the purpose of names and how names are applied to things. We then get Alice um, giving three... Wait, what's the first in insect she says? Um, a horsefly, right? Yeah, first so we get a horsefly, and then we get a dragonfly, and then we get a butterfly. Um those are the three insects that Alice names. And you see the uh, subtext of this list. Here are three different kinds of fly. Horsefly, uh, dragonfly, and butterfly. Three different kinds of fly, which in their names are associated with three other things. One fly that is a horse in some sense, another fly which is a dragon in some sense, and then another fly, which is butter in some sense, right? Connected, one connected with butter, one connected with dragons, one connected with flies. And perhaps there is a way in which that makes sense, um, those connections. But if there are, even if there are connections between those flies and the other part of their name, horses, dragons, and butter. Um, at the very least, it's not the same connection, right? The logical principle underlying, like the, the principle underlying this name, why it is that that name in particular was applied to this creature um, is kind of challenged by the parallelism, right? Um, these names which would all be in the dictionary, right? And therefore sensible. Are not actually very sensible. Notice that this is, our further attention is drawn to this um, by the more literal connection between the looking glass insects and their names. There are butterflies in our world. In looking glass land, there are bread and butterflies. Why is it called a bread and butterfly? Well, that's perfectly obvious. Its wings are thin slices of bread and butter. Its body is a crust and its head is a lump of sugar, right? This insect is a, 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 a walking tea party, right? So, of course, it's a bread and butterfly. What else would you call it? Um, the insects, the looking glass insects are literalizations in some sense. 
of the thing that they're connected to, drawing attention to the fact that, of course, none of our insects work that way. Um, what's Howsoever the horsefly might be connected with horses, it is certainly not because it looks like or is made out of horses. Um, you look at that fly, doesn't, you wouldn't know it had anything to do with horses. Um, nor would you think that a butterfly has anything to do with butter or a dragonfly necessarily with dragons. Um, so again, the relationship between names and things is being brought into question. But notice again, it's not here the looking glass creatures that are strange. It's a strange creature, but it's only strange because it makes sense. Because it is, in fact, there is a direct literal connection between the name and the thing. Is this what names are for? To describe something exactly? But now there's another cause and effect question that Alice immediately brings up. She's been asking what they live on. First, there is the assertion that it is. The gnat is pointing to their three examples. I've got the horsefly in our world, the rocking horsefly in Looking Glass Land. You have the dragonfly in our world and the snapdragonfly in Looking Glass Land. Um, and here, of course, we have the butterfly and the bread and butterfly. And the gnat is pointing them out. They're all standing right around, right? Um, so the first assertion is that this is. The bread and butterfly is. But then Alice asks, but how does it go on being? What does it live on? How can it survive? What is the cause that brings about the effect of its continuation and presumably propagation at some point? Why, that is to say, in a sense, why should it be? So what does it live on? Weak tea with cream in it. On the one hand, that makes perfect sense. The tea, of course, was the only thing missing uh, from this, you know, buzzing um, arthropod, right? Arthropod? Yes. I sometimes get arthropods and anthropods mixed up, but they're quite different. Um, uh, this, anyway, this buzzing arthropod tea party, the only thing that was missing was the tea, right? It's got the bread and butter. It's got the lump of sugar. Uh, uh, it doesn't, uh, all, it, all it's lacking is the tea. And now it is reunited with the tea, right? When it is brought together with the tea, it continues, right? Now you have a tea party. You get weak tea with cream in it, which I'm going to go ahead and guess is probably the kind of tea you would give to a young child. Um, then, um, okay, then, then the bread and butter fly is happy, right? This is the fulfillment of its being, to be united with weak tea with cream in it. But Alice immediately thinks of the problem. Um, it's not going to often stumble on weak tea with cream in it in the wild, now is it? That is, if the way by which the bread and butterfly continues to be, right, if the cause of the effect of its continued survival is the finding of weak tea with cream in it, what, what would happen if it doesn't find any? Well, she, I think she suspects and the gnat confirms it, it would die, of course. If it doesn't get what it needs to survive, it will certainly perish. Without weak tea with cream in it, the bread and butterfly will certainly die. 
by the way, this also, like, you're unlikely to find your bread and butter without your tea, right? But anyway, um, it would die. And Alice remarks thoughtfully, that must happen very often. I mean, there's not much weak tea with cream in it just lying around in the woods. And the gnat says, it always happens. No bread and butterfly has ever actually survived. Despite the fact that there's one sitting right there. Where did it come from? How, how did it live? Right? Um, and uh, the delightful when the gnat follows the gnat follows the line of Alice's cause and effect questions. How does it live? What does it live on? And how does it get what it lives on? And of course, the, or the answer to her inexorable cause and effect questions is it can't get what it survives on. And so it always dies. No bread and butter fly ever survives. And therefore, it is nonsense that it should exist at all. Um, the combination of the acknowledgement of cause and effect reasoning, right? The following through to the bitter, indeed, in this case, bitter end of the cause and effect reasoning on the one hand, and the absolute cheer, the absolutely cheerful blank denial of it, right? Um, that the cause and effect reasoning leads in the end to perfect nonsense. If it always happens that the bread and butterfly dies, how is there a bread and butterfly standing here? Right. Um, that's, we see both of these things at once, both the insistence on cause and effect and the complete disregard of causality as well. Um, and Alice is invited just to accept both of those things together. Um, she's not told, what does it live on? Oh, it doesn't work that way, right? Or what happens if it could, couldn't find any? Well, I, you know, I don't know. Like the, um, the cause and effect is not backing off from that cause and effect. Just ignoring it completely, simultaneously. Um, okay, so much going on here. Man, I could think about each of these things for, like, hours. Oh, dear. And I have. Um, okay. Well, all right. Let's stop here. We'll stop here after the after the bread and butterfly. We'll get to the wood with no names uh, next time. And then we'll get into Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Um, all right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us, uh, joining me tonight. We'll be back next week. We will get to Tweedledum and Tweedledee, so make sure that you go ahead and read Chapter 4. Um uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I love the Tweedledum and Tweedledee chapter, but that's pretty much true of every chapter in the rest of this book. I mean, um, uh, man, but um, keep in mind, as you're reading the Tweedledum and Tweedledee chapter, remember Alice 
and her relationship with poetry in the previous book, right, in Alice in Wonderland. How she kept reciting poetry and the poetry kept kept coming out funny, right? It didn't come out the, like, it, when it came out, it was altered, right? It didn't work the way that it was supposed to work, her recitation. Um, remember that and watch what happens with poetry uh, in chapter four. We'll be talking about that some next time. All right. Um, thanks, folks. I hope you're enjoying this book as much as I am. Uh, such deep stuff, man. I'm telling you, this uh, um, there's this is uh, this book is addressing some deep, deep issues uh, as you give a nighttime reading to your child. But anyway, thanks, everybody. Good night. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.